to Fictionality. I'm John Ferguson. And I'm Scott Heron. And we are two guys that are making a film, but we don't know how. That's right. And uh, we're going to be taking you through some processes in making films and how that applies to our own little projects. Absolutely. I think I'm talking quickly. I'm relaxing into my normal Scottish pace. Chillax. <laughs> <laughs> As I sip from my soda drink. Um, okay, calm. This is international pace of English. Yeah, the non-Scots dialect. I wonder if any, is anyone, everybody, if the well, the, the zero listeners that we have just now, but in the future mm-hmm. we may have some. If you're listening to this from two years in the future, um, and you can understand us enough to answer this question, you could maybe write down in the discussion section for this episode's if you can understand us, or if you struggle, or if you know anyone else in the world that isn't Scottish that speaks English this quickly. Uh, I don't think it would make any difference to us, though, because obviously it's in the past... Yes, we're dead now. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we're, it's, it's obviously 2216, and we've both expired several hundred years ago. a really pessimistic estimate for the end of our movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're not supposed to take that long, surely. 2009... Oh my goodness, 2009. 2012. Anyway, who cares, <laughs> let's let's move on. <laughs> uh, brief updates. Uh, the budget is exactly the same, which we're really pleased about. It's not going up, but then we haven't done anything. So mm-hmm. why would it go up, really? <laughs> exactly, I think we spent all the money we were going to spend at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, we, we are just writing the script. I mean, how expensive can that really be? Well, it takes a lot of toll on... Uh, on our souls. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, that's, that's really bad, because I'm saying, how, how expensive can script writing really be when the script writers of Hollywood are about to go on strike <laughs> for not getting enough money? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, What's that going to do, actually? The, the strike? Yeah. Uh, we can talk about that later, or we can talk about it now. It's lower on the schedule. Uh, let's do it later. Let's, okay, do, let's, we'll do it let's, later. let's stick to the schedule, because it's, okay. it's a very good schedule. We took a long time planning out the schedule. It's got, it's got lines on it. And yeah. Things we try to, in fact, Scott has tried to update our system and make a generic template for our podcast. It did not work. It can work. <laughs> well, let's take the headings I put and then the changes that you made, and we'll have a good template. <laughs> okay. Our first heading is brief updates and exciting film news worth mentioning. And in the brackets it says, "Can we relate this to other films?" Yeah. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I think I said it to you, and then you just wrote it down. Yeah. Um. You're just giving me the secrets of our propaganda campaign <laughs> to get people interested in our film. <laughs> this is a general podcast that has nothing to do with the film fictionalfiction.com. <laughs> Go there today, fictional. it's free. Fictionalfiction.com. Fictionalfiction.com. Fictionality.co.uk. Uh, let's get on that way. <laughs> so what we have been doing is uh, our, our first initial production plan. We, I think you might have heard on the interview we did with uh, Paul Kajeji that... Um, we had a kind of vague production plan in place of like roughly when we do things, but uh, we decided we should maybe do our first sort of yeah actual dates of things and when they'll happen today. Yeah, some of the, some of the things on there, the, well, the initial one is still the script and storyboarding, but you've got things like the proper production planning all the way through to the different shooting sections, and then the dubbing and folly work, and then CGI, and then eventually editing it all together. And in there is also tutorials and vidcasts and then merchandise, film competitions, BBC documentary. <laughs> Oscar. Uh, <laughs> Oscar and then... Money, success, fame. Women and <laughs> toy cars. Where is that, actually? What? Where is that file? Uh, oh, it's on my machine. Do you want me to send it to you? 
It's not in the share folder. No, it's not in the share folder. Because the share folder will ruin your laptop. Yeah. Apparently, the, there's <coughs> going to be a premiere as well, which should be quite good. Oh, yeah. That was a wacky idea that I came up with right today. <laughs> it's like, we should have a premiere for the movie. <laughs> merchandise as well. Listen, yeah, merchandise. We, we came up with a lot of wacky ideas t-shirts, today. T-shirts. Of course, of course, to all of you who are two years in the future, you will obviously have all got all the five different t-shirts that we'll have generated by then. Yeah. You probably just came home from the premiere and wondered, I wonder how that film got made. Yeah, that's true. Because we'll have given you all this information mm. and you'll be sitting here listening. It'll be like history being made. Yeah. I don't know why you randomly would have picked Podcast 7 to be the first one to listen to. But. That's true. But if you did, well done, because this is so far the randomest one we've done. Yeah. And you may actually, maybe you started from Podcast 1 and listened to, well, that's almost like three hours or something of audio. Yeah. <laughs> to get to good old Podcast 7. Yeah. I, I already feel that this is going to be one of my favourite podcasts. Yeah, yeah, me too. I it think, sounds like yeah. we're drunk, but I'm, we're really not. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite sleepy. <laughs> yeah, I guess because we're, we're kind of slightly sleep deprived. Yeah, I've been ill the last week. I've been I haven't been yeah. in uni at all this week. I was so ill. Oh, it's it's eleven twenty two p.m. No. British Standard Time. In two thousand, it's not British Standard Time. <laughs> there is no such thing as British Standard Time. BST. That's British uh, Summer Time. <laughs> what is it? It's uh, what, what we, is we're it? on Greenwich GMT. Mean Time. No, that's right. However, Greenwich officially Greenwich Mean Time doesn't exist anymore. It's UTC. UTC. Universal something. Something. No, it's not. It's British Standard Time. No, it's not. It's British Standard Time. This thing is British Standard Time. Greenwich Mean Time is so old fashioned. I'm going to look it up at Wikipedia right now to prove that you we, should, we, we you record should. this on computers. You should. You should. It's, you keep uh, talking. When I'm I sure it's it. British Standard Time because that was the the whole thing. Because British the, Standard Time. It is. No, because they changed it this year because British of the... summertime BST British summertime. Oh, I'm sorry, British summertime. Oh, no, I, I, sorry, yes. GM, no, hang on. Yeah, Greenwich Mean Time GMT is the zero line, and then BST yeah, but is Gre- the Greenwich Mean Time has adjusted. been renamed because they thought it was unfairly dominant, dominated by you know Britain. That's because it is. So it's uh, called UTC. Hey, we invented time, so we didn't. It's <laughs> <laughs> such a bad thing to say. Oh, this is good. UTC stands for Coordinated Universal Time. Oh, that's quite good for the, the dyslexics out there. Must be in French. You know, you know, if the if the if the line timeline. How, how would you had, say? How would you say coordinated universal time in French? Would it be universal coordinated universal team coordinated? Or something? Uh, but you know, if the, if the timeline had been through Paris, and it'd be called Paris Mean Time, as in. <laughs> in Paris PMT. Mean Time. PMT. Oh, I'm sorry. That'd be um, so fun. <laughs> uh, well, that actually is a whole other joke there. But I didn't mean to go into. But you, you bet because because uh, it's through Paris and. Uh, the French quite rightly are are very proud of their, oh, their country heritage. There's a little there's a little part on the Wikipedia about why it's not correct. So <laughs> it's officially called UTC. Why are we talking about this? It's officially called UTC, uh-huh. but in English it actually stands for Coordinated Universal Time. But in French it's Temps Universal Coordonné, which is TUC. Uh-huh. So in English it would oh. be CUT, and in French it'd be TUC. <laughs> so they compromised. <laughs> And made one that didn't make sense in either language. UCT, UTC. What U- is wrong with the European Union? <laughs> this is what we have to do. We want to make one that makes sense for no one, so that nobody gets upset. Like there's well, no favoritism. When you got British and French and Germans and Italians all in the same room, you have to make some compromises. <laughs> That's so crazy. Uh, uh, but yeah, aye, So GMT is the original one, and then BST is the adjusted British time. So is there one for if summertime? Is there a winter one then? No, <laughs> no. Winter is GMT. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Okay. And then in summer we changed to British summer time, which that's is right. an hour ahead. Yeah, uh, we gained behind? an extra hour of sleep, so it's an hour <laughs> so back. Behind, okay, an hour behind. Spring forward, fall back. 
That's the rhyme. <laughs> Spring forward, fall back. Because in America, Why is that a rhyme? That doesn't rhyme. <laughs> but it's not a rhyme. But it's a thing you say. <laughs> it's it's a it a makes sense though. It's a saying. Spring forward. But did, fall did you back. see that? Just because we're talking about it, that uh, uh, in America they had a whole problem because they adjusted, they changed the time so that it's now they they put the clocks back a weekend uh, later or earlier yeah. or something like that. So I it was earlier. I mean, we, we changed ours a couple of years ago as well. Yeah, but it's causing problems because all these window-based machines and mobile phones are automatically <laughs> updating for later. Yeah, why didn't why didn't that happen with when they did it in Britain? I don't remember it happening in Britain. Well, it's like because the European one didn't used to match Britain, and it does now. So they're not just changed the European one. No, I think I think they changed both because obviously they'd have to change both so that <laughs> no one wins. <laughs> As is the way of the European Union. I thought I thought they changed both so that no one had the original one anymore. So it, all of Europe's under the same system now. <laughs> No one can win. We must all be <laughs> all be the same. You can't favor Britain or France. <laughs> Which, let's face it, are the, are the two are they biggest. They're the two know. dominant ones in the EU. Actually, it's, it's Germany. It's Germany. Germany. Germany's the biggest. The Germans are quite nice. I mean, they're quite kind of you know. Oh, well, okay then. <laughs> See, it's kind of it's kind of weird. Germany is the one that gives most of the money to the European Union. Is therefore supporting the most. The French seem to be paying for most stuff, like huge amounts of money going to the European Space Agency and they're all supporting. And Britain's just like hanging back from everything, saying, yeah, yeah, we're, we're there, but we're just, we're, we're ourselves as well. We've, we've got our own thing going. We don't, uh, why are we talking about this? I don't what, know. Anyway, what, it's got nothing to do with the thing. We've like 10 minutes about the, standard time and summertime. I don't even have the thing up anymore. Where is it? Do all you right. know who first proposed the concept of uh, summertime? Uh, no. Really? Was it not Mr. Happy? It was Benjamin Franklin. Oh, was it? Oh, yep. so it was, yeah. I did know that. that was actually. National Treasure. <laughs> That's right. That excellent film. But uh, everybody said he was crazy until a British farmer really hammered the idea into Britain at the time. Well, it makes sense. It's a British farmer that got it going. And then, it makes and then sense. other countries started adopting it as well. It makes sense. Okay, back to the film stuff. Uh, so the production plan, um, I'm actually quite happy with it. Although the big change that's in the production plan, partly, pa- partly based on the discussion that Scott and I had today about the script is that there's now only six months being given over to the Blender stuff. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, and originally, we had always planned it to be a year, more or less, just for Blender stuff. That is going to be interesting. Uh, yeah. But, however, that's partly because, one, our original factoring didn't actually include things like editing or foley work or dubbing or music or <laughs> yeah, a bunch of other things that are actually quite important at the editing uh, phase. Um so to make sure that we have enough time for all of that, we've now reduced the Blender stuff down. But we were looking over the actual script stuff. Excuse me while I burp. It's disgusting, um, John. No, I said it quietly. See, when Scott does it, he doesn't even pretend. He's like... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, it's better out than in. And uh, other bodily functions as well get done in full public view. <laughs> ah, this is a great conversation. <laughs> a great conversation. Uh, At least I, I admit it. You don't always admit. <laughs> no, I like to pretend that well, it's not me. It's then... not that you don't admit. If somebody mentions it, you'll say, "Yeah, it was me." Yeah. <laughs> but you'll just let it slide for a long time. Oh yeah. yeah. If, you, if you're in polite company, nobody will ever know. Exactly. Um, Sometimes they blame it on the dog. What the hell are I talking about? Oh, your blender. Um, yeah. So the script that we were doing, I think we've we've because we've done the <laughs> the notes on adaptation, we actually realised there's very little CGI in the film now. And actually, I was we were both quite disappointed when we realised that. Cause, yeah, it was all about CGI originally. Yeah, that's what the whole thing was supposed to be about. So. The th- I think I'm estimating now, and I could be wrong, but I'm estimating there's probably less than 30 seconds of CGI in the film now. Is it re- really? I'd estimate that's about it because there's the f- well, uh, we, we're not really keeping things secret anymore. There's the fairy shot, that's right. There's an apple shot, and, and there's a fireball shot. 
And there's a second fairy shot, no? Yeah, there's Tainu. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, the fireball shot. I think that can be more than like 30 no, seconds. No, I mean, that, that a scene, minute max. That scene could probably be extended to at least 30 seconds on its own, like the fireball shot. If not a minute. Why? Well, uh, well maybe. But I, mean, I think it's really pacing is going to be a bit weird if you do that. Well, I suppose if you're actually just looking at the time that there's going to be CGI elements, then I suppose maybe it would be hardly any time at all. Yeah. From that one scene. So, yeah. So, it's, it's really, it's not very much. There is, there's going to be more special effects than that, but. In terms of actual blendering, there's like less than a minute now, and I don't know. Yeah. The film's probably still going to come in at around twenty, twenty-five minutes. I think yeah. the script's still kind of looking that way. So to, to for it to be like less than, you know, yeah. I mean, I think it's still that that amount of CGI is going to take still a while to do, but like to it's deal like, with. So that's like five percent, like less than five percent of the film's going to be C- You know, for a project that we started out as an excuse to use Blender. Yeah. So that's yep. because that's because the script doesn't really match your original goals. Yeah, everything is totally changed now from what it was. Because it's like, in fact, that sort of thing. See, the script is <clears throat> based on a story idea that I came up with that had nothing to do with our film project. My story idea was for uh, an interactive fiction project that I was going to do, which I still plan on doing. We're maybe going to do that. I'm well. I'm going. To, I'm definitely still going to planning on doing that once the film stuff's all done. Mm. I'm going to make uh, a text adventure game of it based on my original idea but because it, but the, the problem was it was a really good idea and we'd really been struggling for like good ideas yeah and he said oh well we'll just have to use that for the film as well because it's, it's a good idea and we're not ha- we're not really doing so well with coming up with ideas yeah so but because of that I think there's not that much CGI in it really in the end yeah <laughs> we could of course just you know say oh what the hell and just make an entirely CGI film but well I mean we could bring in space monkeys and then you know yeah. have them taking over the world oh and yeah, then... yeah. There's, we could just write in that last line and the aliens take the earth <laughs> yeah and then that'll be fun <laughs> suddenly it turns into a, a cheaply made version of Independence Day yeah. <laughs> oh no the White House um, mm. interesting I don't know if anybody see this and of course it's two years later so probably nobody knows but um, there was a thing recently where some guys made a, a life-size model, I think, of an X-Wing from Star Wars. That's cool. Did you see that? A life-size model? It was a life-size model of an X-Wing. Can you sit in it? <clears throat> no. Oh. Um, and what they did is they, they um, had put rockets on it. Real rockets? Yeah. To launch it, to see what would happen. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> they, they did the launch, and it got up to about 100 feet, and then it just you know disintegrated because <laughs> it wasn't structurally sound. <laughs> But it looked really fantastic, and it was like it was an amazing model, and it was it was. I think I mean I think they knew that this was what was going to happen. It's like well, if it doesn't blow up on the way, it's definitely going to smash on the way down, you know. Mm. So I mean they did it knowing this. I mean that's quite a lot of commitment to put into something like that. But then I don't know if this was the official thing that happened or if this was some amateur did this. But I then saw the video again of it, you know, crashing apart, and somebody added in a Tie Fighter coming in and shooting it. <laughs> So it looked like the TIE fighter exploded it, and it looks so like something that would be in Star Wars. It was done so well. No, that's quite funky. So I want to give a shout out to whoever the heck that was that did that because it was a really nice little piece of uh, random CGI to do. That's very cool. <laughs> but I, I don't know if that was the original plan, but it was very cool. Can I just quickly add that it is in fact 2007 and it's November, just because you keep saying for like two years in the future, and I just want to make clear that this point in time it is 2007. I think the podcast has a little timestamp, doesn't it? Oh, does it? Oh, that's fine then. Well, then I, I, I retract that statement. I don't know right? if it does in the, the web page, but it does in like the actual feed <laughs> so if you're listening in 2009 then 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 you're you are the people two years you would be really heartbreaking if my 2009 podcast had been replaced by something better and this is all just completely defunct oh <laughs> uh, well uh in the event that that happens then uh screw you all 
Yeah, nobody ever listened to this, so who cares at that point? Yeah. Moving on, um, I did the first initial scoring of the the main theme, which is also, incidentally, the theme tune to the show that you hear at the start and end of the show. Woohoo. Woohoo. Um, which at the moment is called Themes of the Mind. That's quite, uh, I don't know, thought-provoking. Yeah, it's also, it was the, the name of my first ever EP. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? So you're just recycling. Yeah, I made, I, I only made two copies of it. Ah, excellent. And they were actually both recorded from scratch each time, because I didn't have any system to reproduce music. <laughs> Those early days. They were both just, they were, it was this, it was, there was a live recording, but I just actually recorded it live for both copies. <laughs> I just had a karaoke machine. That's all I had in those days. If I, had, I don't actually know. I don't know where the copies are. I know a Laura Mukherjee has one. She's probably <laughs> lost it now. Uh, almost certainly. When I'm famous, that might be worth something. A Laura should dig that out. So, um, what's happening with the scoring <coughs> stuff then? The music. Uh, well, I'd, all all I'd done was written it out as a little guitar twinkly tinkly. Um, and when I say written it out, I mean I'd figured it out and I knew it in my head and I'd recorded it. Uh. Um, so what I did is I made it into a full song. Um, incidentally, although themes of the mind and it sounds like it's it fits in with the film and the film is about existentialism and all that, the song actually has nothing to do with the film and the theme had nothing to do with the film. The theme is actually oh, let's not get too soppy, but it's about missing my girlfriend who lives in Boston. Aww. Oh, isn't that nice? Um, so that's what it's actually about. So there's there's a song and that's what the song's about. Um, but to be quite frank. It doesn't sound that way, and it fits in really well with the film because I don't. I never mention uh, people by name, mm. and in fact, I talk about my girlfriend as part of my soul, and thus actually fits in really well with our film, which is about existentialism. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's about missing part of my soul. So actually, it works in really well. But um, so what I did is I recorded. I did a really quick demo, and I sent that to uh, two people. I sent it to Jennifer McRitchie, who is going to be. Uh, doing the actual film score with me and she is going to be doing uh, a lot of work on that. Probably, it might even be more than me in the end. I've given her the initial theme and I'm going to be helping her with it. She seemed quite excited about that, didn't she? She does, she seems really excited. I'm, I'm really pleased because Jennifer is a, a really unbelievable musician. She is an amazing pianist. Um, and she's going to be doing a kind of piano arrangement for us. And at the moment, the plan is, at the moment, that the film score is going to be 90% piano. And it'll be mostly Jen's piano arrangements, which I will chip in about, and it'll be based on my theme. But really, it sounds like Jen's doing most of the work now. Uh, I'm going to help out where I can, but Jen seems really excited about it. So, And she knows much more than I do, so I'm just going to more or less let her get on with it. Um, and the plan is the song that I, I wrote is going to be recorded properly. Um, and Christy is going to be singing it instead of me because it's quite high and I can't really sing it very well. Um, and I think we might, I haven't actually asked him yet, so maybe shouldn't be saying, but I might be bringing in uh, a guy called uh, Jame, um, who is in a band with me. Um, so he usually helps me with recording, so hopefully he'll come in and help us out with the, the song version. And the plan is that the song is going to feature in the film as well as this piano arrangement of it. And that'll be a nice contrast. And I think we were toying around with the idea today of maybe chucking in a theremin as well, because... Oh. In, in the last twenty four hours, I've really got into th- I've really got into theremins. They are they are so like kind of next century, but today. Yeah, because I I mean I don't know I've I never really liked theremins. I always thought they were kind of like just like toys, like stylophones. Like yeah, well you'd never really use them. I know I know stylophones were used in that David Bowie song, but you know <laughs> they're basically toys. 
and I just thought theremins were like the same, like, oh, you can never seriously use a theremin. And then I found this video last night on YouTube. What if YouTube's still around in 2009? I found this video last night of YouTube. Oh, it'll be part of Google now. It'll just be gone. Oh, it is part of Google. It is part of Google. It'll just be branded Google now. It'll just be branded Google now. Anyway, uh, (laughs) I found this video, and it was um, a a woman called Lydia Kavina, who I believe is Leon Theremin's niece, the guy that invented the theremin. Um, And it was her playing uh, Claire de Lune on, on the theremin, and... I was totally taken aback by it because I was like, oh my goodness, you can actually, this is like a proper instrument. And this is me, I mean, it's just, uh, music's a very subjective thing, but see, for me personally, that is like the most beautiful rendition I've ever heard of Claire de Lune. And I'm now like really, oh my goodness, theremins are amazing if you can play them properly. And I think that's the problem. I've never heard anyone play them properly before. And I'm really psyched about it now. But they cost uh, like 200, 300 pounds. Yeah, they're kind of they're decent ones. Sort of spiritual, sort of sp- almost spooky. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can be, and the, the Russians use use kind of you know took the guy's technology and uh, forced well, him to make uh, something rather than they. Yeah, it wasn't the guy. It wasn't his technology. They took the guy and uh, forced right, yeah. him to they sort of semi kidnapped him they for like fifteen him. years or something, and forced him to make spy technology and things. It was to try and figure out movement through walls or something. And they kind of yeah, made the first burglar alarm. Yeah, they're trying to like spy equipment and things. Um, but anyway, I, I don't know. I maybe might buy a theremin, and if I do, we'll probably use it. But I don't know. Let's see how that works out. Two hundred pounds. Two hundred pounds, a lot of money. I, if I do, though, that's not officially going down as the film's budget because no. instruments don't count. That's not fair. Yeah. Um, because that wouldn't be the only reason I was buying it, obviously. Um, but anyway, that's all neither here nor there. So I did that. I've sent I sent the demo version off to Jen and to uh, Christy, and. Um, Christy sent me a charming little email back saying um, that it didn't sound so great but that's that's because it was a demo and I wasn't singing very well Um, so I've I've made up the first proper score of the theme so the basic theme is now set solidly in musical notation I've sent that one to uh, Christy and Jen so they've got a better idea of what it should actually sound like as opposed to my slightly dodgy playing and singing Um. And the only reason I'm really mentioning that is because now our, our music's actually going to be in quite a small scale because we are probably just going to restrict it to just piano by and large. And the song version will probably be, you know, get a kind of band, rock band technically with guitars and voice and a bit bigger than that. But the actual main score is just going to be piano. So we're not going over the top with our score. Um, but it's it's a fair point to say that if you have the means to pull in people, and I've got to be honest, see if you you know, kind of know any student musicians, they're usually kind of looking for projects to be involved in, to be perfectly frank. So um, see if you approach a bunch of student, or even a student orchestra, if you can find one, go to a university and like look for the orchestra because they might actually be up for this. Um, and ask them if they'd be like up for, you know, recording your music for free. And they'll probably do it because they're all students and they just want to, you know, they're probably quite happy with that. Um, see if you show up and say, and I've got this theme, blah, blah, blah. They'll just look at you and kind of like, yeah, well, you know, we can't play a theme. You've got to give us a full score. So if you actually are ever planning on taking this to a scale where you want to use basically real musicians, like properly classically trained musicians, you're going to have to score the music because some musicians may kind of be willing to work with you, but most of them, if they're kind of doing it as a favour to you or something, they're just going to want the music so they can play it, record it, and get on with their lives. Mm. And they may be quite happy to do that, but they will not really want to be involved in the writing process because... My experience of musicians is that not as many musicians as you might think are actually that interested in writing music. Um, you tend to find, see the kind of people that play guitar and sing, they're probably quite interested in it. 
most of the people I find that play classical instruments aren't that interested in writing music. That might just be the people I know, but that's the way it is. Um, so you kind of want to have to score it. So there's two things you're going to need to do. One, you're going to need to know music theory. Uh, I don't know music theory very well, to be quite frank. Um, my uh, my theory stuff ended, you know, not that far far on into my music lessons, to be perfectly honest. But if you do want to learn music theory, um, there's two fantastic books I can recommend, and I think you probably already know what they are if you're into this at all. It's The AB Guide to Music Theory, Part 1 and Part 2 by Eric Taylor. And they maybe don't tell you everything, but they tell you everything you need to know. So get those books. And then what I did is I was using a free program called Lillipond, which is for typesetting music. That's all it's for. Um, it's and such it's a nice name for a program. Lillipond, I know. Um, it's actually based on LaTeX, which oh, is, a, is a typesetting program. Difficult, for, difficult program. Yeah, Lillipond's much harder to use than LaTeX, by the way. Oh, right. Um, because it uses a kind of a, a notation that's very much for music. So I don't know. I, th- I find it quite hard getting into it, but I find LaTeX quite hard getting into it as well. Um, and I love LaTeX now. Um, yeah, either way, this is all kind of getting off the point. But um, LaTeX is really good if you actually ever want to produce professional-looking documents. It's really good. Lilypond is the same. If you ever want to produce professional-looking scores, use Lilypond because it's free and it's amazing. But it has this kind of learning curve. I would tell you to steer away from the graphical programs um, where you kind of you like select a note and then click on the score where you want it to be and all that kind of stuff, because I'm going to be honest, I think they look horrible, the output from those. And while they may be technically correct, they look horrible, and most musicians don't like playing them. And I've actually got to say, a lot of the time they are technically wrong, because they do weird things like, see the people that use those programs, they tend not to know things like what key the music's in, and they do weird time signatures and stuff, and like basically because they don't really know what they're doing, the music comes out really weird and hard to read. Um, it doesn't really make that much sense to a musician. So Lily and Lily Pond actually takes care of a lot of that for you. It's actually the best I've seen for doing automated stuff like that. But it allows you to override any of it as well. So I can't I can't speak highly enough of Lily Pond. Lily Pond's amazing, but is frustrating. It has a huge learning curve. But once you get past that, it's great. And I've got to I think a lot of my problems were for me not knowing music theory well enough. So you know, there's maybe that as well. But again, I mean, we're talking about writing music. You don't have to write your own music. There's loads of Creative Commons stuff out there you know, to just find music that fits. It's maybe nice to mention to the author or ask the author if you can use it, but if you're not going to make any money and you fit in with the licensing conditions, you don't specifically need to tell the author. So uh, There's loads of Creative Commons music. It's, that's probably the easiest way to go. So, yeah, so that's the scoring stuff um, and what we're doing with it. Um, was there anything else about the music? Mm, I think that was it, really. <coughs> just the fact that you made them up and uh, passed out and yeah. oh, you can get that's all on our website as well at the moment I think it's in one of the news um, posts about it's, I think it says Lily Pond in the post so you can go in and you can get the source code for my current version of it and a PDF of the current version so that's excellent. how cool am I <laughs> excellent excellent um, okay so what are we on to now uh, the next part uh, has a weird tagline actually uh Talk about anything relevant to our filmmaking process for that week or whenever, and then colon, and then from political to weird. I'm not quite sure <laughs> what that was supposed to mean, but uh, <laughs> hmm. uh, oh yeah, the Creative Commons stuff. Oh yeah, and um, open source. I I made a post this morning. Um, I don't know why. I woke up this morning and thought I should really make a post about this, but I'm not sure it's really that important or not. But um, 
it occurred to me that uh, there's, well, as far as I'm aware, there's only one true open source movie, and it was instantly not released under an open source license per se. Oh, really? Are you talking about Elephant Stream? I'm right? talking about Elephant Stream, which was the Blender Foundation uh, open source movie that came out, was it last year or the year before? Um, last year, it was last year. Um, yeah, that's actually released under a Creative Commons license. No, it was the year before, sorry. It was the year before, well, it was released under a Creative Commons license. Um, now, this is the kind of thing that I was I was thinking in my head, I don't know if this is really true, this is just my impressions of it, so don't take any of this as... as absolutely 100% true and in fact a lot of it's probably certainly not but this is the way I, I tend to think about these kind of things in my head um, open source for me means that the raw material for something is available to you for free um, so in the case of Elephant's Dream not only was the final film you know free which is great but that's not really a condition of open source because, for instance, you get open source programs where the program itself is not necessarily free, but the source code for it must be free. Um, for an example of that, look at many distributions of Linux. A lot of them, the actual, you still buy the version of Linux from them, but you can download the source and compile it yourself from scratch if you choose. Very few of them actually still abide by that model in fairness, but Red Hat used to do that years ago. Um, if you actually wanted Red Hat without paying anything, I think you did used to have to compile it from source. Do you know anything about this, Scott? Mm, and, uh, uh, yeah, just the fact that you had the access to the source files. I'm sure there was something like this years ago. Anyway, if you, actually, <coughs> if you actually read the first open source license, which is the GNU General Public License, it does actually stipulate that you are allowed to make money from open source products. It just says that the source code must be free. Yeah, and, and if you used any of the source code in new code, that all that code then had to become yeah. open source. So it has well. that kind of a viral nature where if you use it in your own product, your product has to be GPL as well. Um, now, I've got, I've got nothing against open source. In fact, I'm very pro-open source. I think open source is a really great thing. Um, my issue with it is I think a lot of people say open source when they mean, in my head at least, Creative Commons. Now, where I see the difference is that Creative Commons is talking about an end product, if you like, whereas open source is talking about the raw materials that made that end product. So, for instance, you know, see if I gave, <laughs> if I gave you a, an executable program and said, yes, that's open source, hmm. and then didn't give you the source code, what would that mean to you? Uh, it means that the source is not open. Yeah, do you know what I mean it's not open source then? It's like so. What, what I can, what can I do? Am I allowed to decompile it? Am I allowed to do you know what? Am I allowed, am I allowed to use it for free and give it to other people for free? It's like, you know, it gets kind of like. So what does that mean? Hmm. Other than you know, open source to me in terms of programs means I have access to the source code for free. So when they say it about films and music, what are they meaning? Hmm. Well, I guess like uh, talking about open source would mean access to. Uh, all the raw footage files, perhaps, or if you're using CGI, the Blender models, and or sorry, I say Blenders, uh, kind of the models used, or whatever, kind of uh, all, all the all the data used to compile the film together yourself. I guess that's that's exactly the way I would look at it, and I think that is where the open source comes in in terms of if you talk about an open source movie, that's what that means to me. That means exactly as Scott said, the raw files that were used are available to me and that I can use them in some open source type of way. Um, so under that, guys, um, there's some links on the website just now to kind of useful open source stuff. 
Uh, they're all from the Internet Archive because I can't really bother going out and finding other stuff. Um, the Internet Archive has movies that are now in the public domain, which is basically they're so old that nobody owns them anymore. Uh, which has, by the way, are some really good films. I think they've got like Nosferatu's there, and I think Metropolis might be there, and I think Night of the Living Dead. I don't know. Go and check it out. Nosferatu's definitely there anyway. Um, they've also got stock footage. Which is great and surprisingly useful, to be perfectly honest. Really, stock footage? What just to just take and use? Yeah, yeah, it was just yeah, because the Internet Archive is just all Creative Commons anyway. Huh. Um, but then they've got this section called Open Source Movies, and I thought, hmm, what does that mean? And I went along and looked, and what it is is that's that's modern films that you can t- download and use in projects under a kind of Creative Commons license. Mm. So stock footage is you know as you'd expect stock take footage. The old films are films that are so old they're not under a license anymore. But there's also these open source movies. But I think the thing that was annoying me was that you didn't have access to the raw footage. You just had access to these completed films. And I thought, well, that's not open source. That's Creative Commons. So again, this is where I see it. Creative Commons is open source-like in nature in that it's encouraging people to build upon previous works. But Creative Commons, there's no direct implication or need to give out the raw files. Huh. At least that's my understanding of it. So, for instance, all the band that I'm in, NGO, all our music at the moment has been released under Creative Commons. That means that you have the music, you can get it for free, you can pass it on for free, and you can remix it for free as long as you give us credit and you don't make any money off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, it's still that kind of building upon it thing, which makes it kind of it feels open source, but it's not really because I'm under no obligation, and certainly it's not implied in any way, that you can get the raw materials off me. Incidentally, if you really wanted them, I'd probably give them to you. But, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not offering that to people directly, and that's certainly not implied by the way that I'm releasing the music. And you'll find that's probably true of most Creative Commons uh, music. Um, uh, but that's the other thing I like about Creative Commons, which I think is missing from a lot of the open source licenses, which is that I still maintain control over that music after it's gone. Because, for one thing, everybody has to always attribute that I was the original author which is not actually something that's usually included in open source licenses, even though it'd be very rare for somebody to nick the credit off you know, a work like that, but theoretically there's nothing legally to say they can't, um, other than it just being immoral. And the other thing is that people can't make money off of it, because I've said they can't. But the other Creative Commons thing, which I think is really nice, is that they always have this last-minute addendum, which is, but the original author can waive any of those rights if you ask them. All right. So see if one person says, actually, can I make money off of it? And I say, yes, then that one person can. Uh And see, for instance, if I decide that I do want to make money off of it, I can. Something you can't do with open source. Because open source has that viral nature about it. Once you release it as open source, you've lost control. Now, again, I'm talking about open source licenses here, not the open source concept. It's just that most open source licenses tend to work this way. Now, um, the way that we're looking at our film at the moment is that it is open source in that you will have access to all our raw material that was used in the final film cut. However, that f- all that footage and the final film will be released under Creative Commons licenses. So the way that we're looking at it is we're releasing this stuff as Creative Commons but with the ideology of open source because the raw materials are there. So we're kind of... I think we're kind of trading the waters between both. And that's pretty much what um, the Blender open source movie did. And they can, they're happily calling themselves the open source movie because they gave access to the raw materials. 
but officially speaking, they're not open source because I don't think they used what is an open source approved license. Because, I, I mean, I could be totally wrong. I really haven't done the research, but I don't think Creative Commons technically qualifies as open source. That's a, diff- that's a different thing. That's, that's part of that whole free culture thing that I've talked about before. Um, so I thought that was an important point to make out in case somebody accuses us of not being open source at some point because we're not using a designated open source license or something. We're only open source in ideology, not not officially. We're Creative Commons in technicality. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, I, I actually kind of talked quite a lot about that on a post anyway today. So um, yeah, I, I, how does that really, that doesn't really affect our film distribution in any major ways really. That was always the plan. Um so I, I don't suppose it really makes a big difference for us. I think technically it means it's going to be quite hard for us to make any money off of our film, if you want to put it in that sense. Because by releasing it as Creative Commons, it basically means that you know the music is going to be out there for free. And even though technically we could at some point say, yes, that's not the case anymore, once it's out there, you can't really pull it back in. You know, It's gone at that point. So Yeah, you could stop it from being... You could stop other people from making a lot of money off of it, and you could start selling it. Um, but well, I mean, know. I mean, our license will not allow anyone to make any money off of it, actually. But that kind of includes us. <laughs> yeah, but because I mean, well, we we could make money off of it, but basically, it's like we're there's no guarantee we ever would because, um, you know, people can get it for free online, so why would they pay for it? Basically, yeah. but I mean, that's not really what kind of this is about. No, anyway. no, absolutely not. We're not trying to make money off this, but, um, but I think that's that's going to be what led us down to kind of things like merchandising and stuff. We're just kind of thinking. By the way, we're not, we're not trying to make money of this, and we're not trying to think of ways to make money. We were just trying to think of ways that it might be more interesting to, quite frankly, to see how popular it is, because with, with NGO, NGO is my band, and we are not trying to make any money at all, but we have places where you can like buy physical versions of our CDs and buy merchandise from us, like hoodies and stuff. And that is really not to make money, because quite frankly, we don't make any money off that. We've actually set the... What is the shops that make this stuff for us? You actually can say what your commission is. Our commission is always zero. So we don't want to make any money off of it. And the reason we have those there is to find out how many people buy them just to see how many people like us enough to want to buy merchandise. (laughs) I think it could be very cool to see people walking around with a fictionality t-shirt or a fictionality hoodie. So I think, you know, I think we'll probably still do that just purely to see if anyone's actually, you know, supports us enough to want to do that, really. Yeah. Um... And of course, and merchandise, we were actually talking about, you know, what their final plan will be. I think we're probably going to follow what Elephant's Dream did, and we're going to have a DVD out, which has the film on it, but also has the raw materials. So it may be like a double DVD release or something. Um, and I think we're, we're talking about if the soundtrack comes out well enough, we'll probably release the soundtrack under Creative Commons as well, separately from the film. Uh, well, I suppose we'll probably release it as part of the film as well. But you, basically, you, I'm going to say you can buy a, a CD version of the soundtrack if you like as well. And of course, we're still at the back of our minds planning on doing a book of all the, you know, how we made the film. That'll be more of a compilation of the uh, the website and yeah. tutorials and stuff. But I, do, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect to see that, you know, until maybe a year after the film was done. Yeah, because that'll take a, a quite a long time to compile that. I think probably not long before the game. Uh, well, see, I think Eventually. I'm going to, I'm thinking doing the book first, then the game. Or uh-huh. I might end up doing both at the same time. But, I mean, you'll be helping with the book and the game as well. So, obviously, um, and the game, I doubt very many people, even people that were interested in the film, will ever play it because interactive fiction is just a very niche thing. But yeah, you never know. It's, it may actually our film may actually get people even interested in interactive fiction. Cause it's not. It's never mentioned very much in the media. Um, 
Uh, but the thing is, interactive fiction games, I would say, I've, I've never written one from scratch. I converted one once from one language into another one. Uh, interactive fiction, you have to write in a programming language. Uh, and that was quite a good learning experience for me, but I've never actually written one myself from scratch. And to be honest, I, it sounds so hard, and anything I've tried, I've struggled a little bit with it. But I love those games. I think it's a really interesting medium that I, I really I hope does not get lost in time because it's such a unique medium, and I'd, I'd hate for it to just disappear. Um, Hidden by all the big games like Bioshock and uh, yeah. all, the, all the big uh, first-person shooters and... Uh, because I mean, in the moment, it's only amateurs making them, and I mean, there's loads of amazing games that and they're all free because it's just amateurs that make them for free and give them out. There's one company that makes them um, professionally, called Malinch Software, who I have to say I'm not a fan of. I don't think their games are very good, um, and to be quite frank, the guy that runs that company's well, I don't want to start a kind of flame war about it, but I, I don't like him very much. Um, I've 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 bought a couple of his games and I was disappointed. I think the the amateur games are better, um, but there is a new company starting up called Textfire, spelled with a Y. Textfire, and um, that's by a guy who I've I've played some of his amateur work, and he's actually pulled in people that are well known amateurs and got them to write games commercially. So I think that might be more interesting. Um, I think their first game is going to come out early two thousand and eight. So I'm kind of interested to see how that company does. But um, anyway, it's, there's not really a commercial market for it, is the point. Um, so yeah, I think, is, was there any other merchandise that they were kind of thinking, the, the DVD, the CD, the book, the game, and probably clothes, I guess? Uh, I want to see a hat, I want to see a scarf, a t-shirt, a hoodie, um, jeans, um, glasses... <laughs> Uh, even the wee contact lenses with the logo on the contact lens. So well, I'd blink. I don't want to go overboard because I'll just say like we're selling out. <laughs> well, you know the tattoo, the henna tattoo. The, um, we'll start opening department stores. Um, yeah. Helicopters branded seven four sevens because of course the new Airbuses, Airlines, uh, Islands of you know. the Virgin Islands. Oh yeah, yeah, Necker Island. Uh, <laughs> uh, buying it off of Sir Richard Branson and theme parks. Uh, oh, theme park would be fantastic. Anyway, uh, <laughs> like Westworld, um, but but without robots that go wrong, without dead people. Um, yeah, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? That would be awesome. I mean, I don't think it'll ever be that popular. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm also incidentally pushing for uh, our game to be uh, on the Xbox. <laughs> Text adventure. Uh, on the Xbox. Well, see, I'd like to see. I'd like to see it go full 3D. I'd actually would like, like to see that. I'm never making a full 3D game because I've looked into that before and it's really hard. <laughs> I think it could be fun. An Xbox or PlayStation 3. You know, honestly, Scott, see for you and me to make a game, and I'm not saying we couldn't do it, we could do it. I'm just saying, see for us to make it and make it compete with whatever the current games are, we'd have to work full-time on it for about mm, a year. Well, I'm, I'm willing to give up my, my PhD to see this out on the you're, Xbox. You're willing to do it a full oh, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, just, that's just you and me working on it solely for a year, and that would be a very short game. Well, I think that's fine. Yeah. You okay with that? I think it will sell like hotcakes. I, I'm I don't not think it will. being sarcastic. But I think we could we could if you licensed the source engine, I think that's probably the easiest one to use. Hmm. We could do it in an open source. Oh, let's just pay let's sense. just pay Valve to do it. They just, just stuff like <laughs> they they did portal, I mean they'll do anything. Let's just let's just make them do it. Yeah, let's just license it to them. Oh, just, we'll just sell the idea. A portal version of the story. That would be so amazing. How would that work? I think I think if you take the game portal and then you make it into <laughs> import it into any game out there, I think that it would just be fantastic. 
Yeah. I think it would absolutely make any game more hilariously funny. <laughs> and fantastic to play. You know, interestingly enough, see the reason that I came up with this story in, in a lot of ways is because I was trying to come up with a story that I thought could only be played in interactive fiction in that medium. <laughs> what, in Portal? No, the fictional fiction. Oh, I see, okay. Sorry, I've got Portal in the brain now. I was trying to come up with a story that would only work in the medium of interactive fiction because I think that's one of the problems with interactive fiction. It's a medium where I think a lot of people don't get it and like why it exists as a medium and what makes it different. But uh, to be honest, you just have to play a couple and then you realise, but... I think uh, text adventures. I think I think Portal as a text adventure would work really well. You see, like Fire Blue Portal on Southwest Wall. You know, you're actually you're you're kidding, but I have actually seen somebody made um, a text adventure version of the first level in Quake. Oh really? Yeah. How does that even? How would that even work at all? It's really weird. It's like fire gun at dog. Really. And then dog is approaching, and then you know, it's, it's grunt is approaching. It's really really weird. That's, uh, I think it's not real time then either. It must like no, pause and wait, wait for you. So it says like Grunt is approaching. Yeah, if you Grunt don't do anything, things will happen. Well, that's really weird. It's a really, really odd game. But I would say, you know, it's really worth having a look at because you've got to really admire the guy that did it. Yeah, that actually, that actually would be a lot of uh, a lot of fun to. It's really <laughs> maybe not really fun crazy. actually so much as trauma. But do you know, actually, I've seen a better one. <laughs> Quake with Portal because that would be no, cool. There's a better one. Pong is a text adventure. What? what? <laughs> Huh? Somebody, what, made, really? somebody made Pong as a text adventure. <laughs> move paddle up. Yeah. Move paddle down. Interesting. What? I can't really remember it works. There was actually, there was, it was a, it was a, a sort of uh. little campaign they had a couple of years ago. They said they were going to do um, arcade interactive fiction, and they made a bunch. They like remade a bunch of games as, but it's, it's all a joke. I mean, they're not really playable. But that's funny. They did I, like Pong. They did Space Invaders. They did a bunch of other. Could ones. you imagine Pong but with portal guns? How cool would that be? Like Pong Portal. <laughs> Portal Pong. How would that work? That would be, you could fire a portal at one side oh, and have yeah, the ball okay. travel and it would go would through off work. of the side of the screen and into the goal. That would just portal, just <sighs> portal, so portal, 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 portal is brilliant. <laughs> Can I say, have I said that enough yet? The orange yeah, por- box. Portal is a good game. I do like portal. I made a there's little, a flash version of it too. If you go to tubbypaws.blogspot.com, there's a little thing you can print out and make a little portal model out of paper. The companion cube is also very good. That cool. I made uh, yesterday, and it took me three hours. Three hours to fold bits of paper? <laughs> to cut out the bits of paper and fold them using tape. Oh, dear. Mm. You should have used some glue. Like I, um, I couldn't find any glue. <laughs> I know, some... some uh, glue yeah, like would, have made, would have made the, the process a lot easier. By the way, the thing is, I'm really meticulous when I cut things out, and it uh, takes me ages. Well, I, have, I have a really weird um, OCD thing about certain things. About cutting? About a lot of things, it's about washing things, cleaning things, cutting things. I see most things that I do, because um, a lot of people think I'm really laid back. Do you think I'm laid back, Scott? Um, I did it first. <laughs> <laughs> and you do, you do come across as being laid it's back. It's when you start working on projects with me, you realise how yeah, not laid back yeah, I actually since, am. Since doing this, I've noticed yeah. uh, just the amount of output that you seem to generate. I mean, like, <laughs> uh, I've noticed the number of entries that I've got on the website are very low, and I think that I'm already donating quite a lot of time from my PhD <laughs> to do this. And it's it's like a huge big catch-up game. Like, I don't quite know how you're... you're very, you are very uh, dedicated to... It's because uh, I don't really have free time. I don't, I don't agree with free time. You don't agree with free time? No. I need my Xbox time. I need some downtime. I know, but I do, I do play Bioshock and things like that, but I actually treat it as a bit of a project. <laughs> uh, I suppose. So I treat games as a sort of a bit of a project. The thing you is, treat it's like, games as a project? Yeah, I think I do, because I think everything in my head is like... You should go, everybody should go to my personal website, sympodius.com, and it's called The Sympodius Project. The Sympodius Project is my life. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all it is. It's, I think it's actually... The, the subtitle is A Life of Projects, and that's me. That's my life. It's just... It's just a series of projects interconnected that make up my life. 
How amusing. And I think what it is, is see when you meet me, because I'm not working on anything at the time, <laughs> like, because, you know, I'm, not, I'm there with you, I come across as really laid back. And it's only when you see me working on stuff, you realise how meticulous and anal I really am. <laughs> Hang on, does that mean that when you're, when you're interacting with people, that becomes a project as well? And hence you... You know, actually, I think, I think somewhere in the back of my mind, it kind of does. That's... Because that's, that, that, I, 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 cultiv- I cultivate relationships that way, I think. I could see how you could be quite laid back for people because that is the project. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, psychological analysis, though. Because I think that's why I have so many friends. Because <laughs> you're cultivating like a farmer. Yeah, because I think I cultivate friendships quite John well. John the farmer. And it's like, it's all in the back of my head. And I don't think I'm, I'm not like trying to be like a purposely like a... I mean, I think I am good friends with these people, like genuinely good friends. But I think it's the reason I am good friends with them and I stay good friends with them is because um, I kind of commit to it like a project. Or, you know what I mean? I commit to it as something that I want to develop. I would have said in many ways that that was actually probably a gift, though, because it means you're you're not only very dedicated to your work, as I've seen, but you're uh, also dedicated to many other things. You appear to have so much more time than me. I don't quite... I don't know, maybe I'm just really, really unorganised, or I'm just uh, taking too much time to sleep. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd say there's three things there. One, uh, I am a bit of an insomniac anyway. I don't really like sleep. Again, I don't agree with sleep. <laughs> I, I love sleeping. I think sleep I don't, is one of the I don't like things. sleep because I feel unproductive when I sleep. Um, the other thing is I say, I think Scott is slightly unorganized to be perfectly honest, but you know, he seems yeah. to get through everything. So who cares? Yeah. And I don't uh, like being too organized. Yeah. The last thing is that I don't really have free time per se because I don't like free time. Really? You yeah. Don't, you don't like to, to chillax? No, I always do something. I see. Do you know, I see, do you know what I, f- I really struggle with? Sitting and doing nothing. Really? I find that incredibly Actually, hard to do. no, I, I'm the same. I can't sit and do nothing. I need I, to... Yeah. I, need to be, I need to be watching a film or playing a game or doing, you know, even in my, my supposedly downtime, I need to be doing something. I really struggle to just not do anything. In fact, it's really bad. See, when I fall asleep, I'm watching a film falling asleep because at least I'm doing something while I wait to fall asleep. I see. I'm really, really bad at not doing anything. I think we must be three or 400 miles off track. I know. That's like, the episode's really running on as well. 52 minutes and 19 really, seconds. We were worried we wouldn't have enough for a whole show, and then I got real crazy. And then we just started stroking my ego for the last uh, <laughs> 10 minutes there. Trying to deflate you a little bit there. We're calling Her you fan. Farmer John. Yeah. Uh, screenwriters going on strike. We Did we talk about that? No, we didn't talk about it. Well, we started them, actually. We should talk oh, yeah, about that's them. right. And then Artists versus Monkey Men. No, Money Men, sorry. <laughs> Money Men. <laughs> Artists versus Money Men. <laughs> Monkey Men. <laughs> Monkey Men from the planet Mars. No, that's boring. Monkey Men from the yeah, planet Venus. Monkey Men from the planet Venus. They're always hot. 400 <laughs> degrees. What kind of monkeys would live in 400 degrees Celsius? That would be crazy. Uh, so screenwriters going on strike. That actually doesn't sound very good. Uh, yeah, this is probably such old news. Though. Again, I just assume all our listeners are from the future. Um, yeah. In 2007. In, What's it like in 2009? In, in Please write in our, in our discussion and tell us. <laughs> I and we'll include it in our next show. I'm a, in our, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I think our next podcast should be entitled Podcast 8 2009. <laughs> yeah, from the future. Hello, Actually, we should do from the future. See, in 2009, we should record, we should, we should leave a slot now for Podcast 8. Not, yeah, okay, okay. Let's and just have a completely podcast blank 8. podcast with nothing in it. Yeah, okay. And then in like 2009, that. we'll come back and do, like, from the future. <laughs> and uh, let everybody know how well the film does. That's great. Just, yeah, just come in and spoil it for everyone. Should we do that? Yeah, oh, do you know what we'll do? Do you know what we'll do? We'll wait till we get to podcast 13 and we'll then we'll ignore podcast 13. And then come we back. just wouldn't do a podcast 13 and then we'll come back in from the future okay. and do a podcast 13. I'm going to make a note of that. I'm going to make a note of that right now. So it won't be unlucky. We'll wait till the film's a success. Typey, typey, then we'll come typey, back typey. and see how big a success it was. Typey, typey. Okay, that's great. <laughs> that's such a fun idea. How cool are we? <laughs> so um, weird. 
I wonder if we'll actually remember this about is that. Such a weird. That's podcast. your job, Scott. You have to remember about that. Okay, I'll forget because uh, I have to use my, I have to use my Windows Mobile Six device to tell me everything because <laughs> I I forget everything. Windows Mobile Six. I'm only on Windows Mobile Five. Windows Mobile Six is so. Of course, good. in the future, you'll be on Windows uh, Vista Mobile. <laughs> ah, 2009. Everything will be projected into free space right in front of you. You know, just interact with it just like they did you in the Minority Report. Thinking thoughts. You'll, yeah, that's right. Did, or did you'll, Google you'll, not? Google uh, patented something that monitors your thoughts. Really? Yeah, they did. They they monitor. They want to create a system where their input is coming from your your mind. There's already loads of systems like that though. Glasgow University is working on one. Really? Yeah. That's Glasgow University. Yeah, but they actually, their one was actually quite good. Although they had a much better one that was based on visual tracking. By looking at your eyes. It like watches what your eyeballs do. Oh, that's quite and interesting. It's like you can navigate a computer using your eyes. I've got to say that works really well. There must be it warms if you uh, blink accidentally well, or blinking you... blinking is actually part of the navigation system. That'd be so difficult. Yeah. That must be so annoying. But I think it's like single see like a blink that happens in like, you know, a fraction of a second. I think purpose blinks, you know, are like half a second or something. I don't oh. know, you know, it kinda it acknowledges the differences between blinks, accidental blinks and purposeful blinks. Or something. I see. What was if you accidentally closed on a program that you'd written like a thesis amount of work in and hadn't saved because you were silly enough not to save? Well, if you're using any kind of decent program, it'll auto save. Or I'll ask you if you want to save or not. I think that's, that was always <laughs> my big problem with Linux in the early years. Linux assumed you knew what you were doing. It never used to ask you to clarify things. Yeah. Remember that? Uh, so like, see if you. I remember in the old days, see if you closed a word processor in Linux and you hadn't saved, it would just close. You'd lose all your work. It wouldn't ask you. It wouldn't say, "Are you sure?" It would just assume, oh, you're a power user, you're using Linux, yeah. you know what you're doing. Power users. On the best one, if you wanted to, del- to delete a bunch of files. Because uh, if you're using the, the terminal commands, and you see, like, oh, delete yeah, yeah. this and directory, you, and it deletes and the whole PC. And it just deletes the whole PC, and it wouldn't ask you. It would just say, okay, you're a power user, you know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> All the defaults on Linux used to be horrible, you have to really... I really, I really need, you really appreciate those kind of... What you try and do something, and then it goes, are you sure you want to do that? And yeah. you go, actually, actually, do you know what, actually, do you know what... I didn't mean to click that button. Yeah. I don't want to delete that yeah. file. I love the recycle bin. It's great. It's like, oh, actually, uh-huh. no, actually, I didn't mean to delete that one. Go into the recycle bin and just fetch it out. Great. Yeah, because you have the whole sort of, I want to delete, and they go, so are you sure? And you say, yes. And then you go, oh, actually, I didn't mean to. And you can still take it out. I think, actually, Apple was a wee bit annoyed that Microsoft came up with the name recycle bin before they did. What do they call it? Trash. The trash can. Which doesn't make sense, because that means it's gone. The trash it's trash. Can. Whereas recycle well, bins kind of... You know, this is a place where these files can be recycled at some point for new files. Is it not? It makes more sense. I mean, this might not actually not be correct at all, but did, did Apple not come up with trash can before Microsoft came up with recycling bin? No. No, they didn't? Uh, okay. I thought Windows was the first commercial Windows system. Uh, was it? Yeah, because everybody keeps saying that it was Apple. No, it wasn't. It was Xerox no, had the no, first no, no, Windows no, 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 system. No, that wasn't commercial. Wasn't it? Uh, no, the first commercial consumer level one was Windows. But then I, Windows One. IBM bought the Xerox thing and then Microsoft bought it off of IBM? Or no, did I, no. Microsoft just buy it? Or Microsoft, did it just no, Microsoft, it Microsoft then... just made theirs from scratch. Uh, okay. Because there was, there was the Xerox one called X. X. Eh, no, eh, no, it wasn't. That's, no, that's, that's, that's the new one. <laughs> it was called, it was called uh, the Xerox one was called W. W. Which was incidentally short for Windows. It's a pretty, pretty shortened version of Windows, the letter yeah. W. And X was the the sequel. Really? W, X. X comes after it in the alphabet. Oh, really? It was called W because it was short for Windows. The geniuses at Xerox there. Yeah, and then it was the, the next version was called X, which is, by the way, the one that Linux still uses is X, or it's based on X. I see. 
Oh, oh, that was the other thing I wanted to mention. Leopard. Oh, God, we're actually almost going to make an hour. Um, 57 minutes. We're actually so going to go over an hour. This is our first more than an hour show. We're just rambling. Uh, Ubuntu. Ubuntu came out um, this week. 7.10 came out this week. Or I didn't this week. It was a couple of weeks ago. Genuinely, that's the that's the amazing version of Linux. That is, I think, really, people could just use that. And I think, see, actually, total, I have no idea how to use a PC users. See, if they got that on a new PC... I think they'd find that easier than Windows or Mac just now. I think that's the simplest interface I've seen for a computer. Propaganda. No, I, honestly, have you used it? Uh, yeah, I have actually. It's quite nice. You know, see, um, see, you know, I mean, you know, what I mean, like people that just want to like browse the internet and use a word processor. Yeah. Which yeah. is like actually a surprisingly large number of computer users. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, I mean, I I just installed uh, <laughs> Ubuntu on my my mum and uh, my mum's PC, uh, my mum's laptop with uh, my mum Graham's laptop. And uh, they they wanted to use Open Office, and I, I I offered. I said uh, I can give you Windows, and I can give you um, Office, and they went no no no. We want something simple just to do. And I was like, oh, that's fine. Well, I think is again. I actually think Open Office is the best Office that's available just now. I really like Open Office. Open Office is very good because um, I think it has I think it has a better feature set. Than I still Office. use Microsoft's Office because I am too afraid to let go. I'm the kind of person who doesn't want to let go of the floppy disk. <laughs> Although I have actually let go of the floppy disk, yeah. I don't want to let go of uh, of uh, Microsoft Office. Just not quite yet. I really like OpenOffice. Although there's a big propaganda thing recently that John has hiccups. With I know. Sorry. The Open Document Foundation have dumped ODF. What's ODF? Oh, the Open Document format. The Open yeah. Document format, which by the way is now a world standard. ISO have accepted it as a world standard, I believe. Who? Sorry, who dumped it? Uh, the Open Document Foundation. Uh, the op- Yeah, the Open. Really? Document, why? Yeah. Why? Why did they? Because, well, apparently they, they want to go with the W3C one, which is the consolidated document format. Oh. Or something like that. It's, it's, it's W3 made it. Um, W3C came up with one. And they think that's the more flexible one, and they say that that's, the, that's a better, more future-proof thing to go with. That's fantastic. But, I mean, o- ODF is an ISO standard, and it's, a lot of countries have made it their standard office, you know, file format. Yeah. Um, I definitely don't think it should be any of the Microsoft ones. They are not well enough defined. Yeah, there's major yeah. problems with their proposals. They're like huge sections of how things should be rendered are not defined. It's, yeah. not, it's not good. We're going off in another horrible tangent. We're yeah. over an hour now. Yeah. We should really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so get you into and the only reason I say that is because there's some products that we are toying with using that you could only use in Linux just now. There's no Windows version, especially video editors. Open source video editors in general are not good just now. They maybe are in 2009 at the moment. They're not good, but the ones that are good are only available in Linux. Yes. So. Linux is something you maybe should play about with. If you're thinking of playing about with uh, Ubuntu, get Wubi, because it's a sort of installer for Ubuntu that runs in Windows, and it doesn't muck about with your partitions or anything like that. It doesn't do anything to your hard disk. So it's really, really safe. And if you want to uninstall it, you go into Windows and go into and remove and remove it. It's really, really good. Fantastic. I think you should write that down in a thing in, in the news or something so that they can... Uh... Oh, but what would be in Ubuntu? I might yeah. do it. I might do it if I get around to it. Actually, you should do it. You know all the details. Yeah, uh, the screenwriters thing, though, that's a big deal. What is the screenwriters guild in America who write all the big Hollywood movies have... Um, they're finally, they've had enough and they've said, look, we're not getting enough money from these movies. And they're about to go on strike. And... Um, I think they're totally right. I think that's completely true because um, I, I think I did actually make a post about this, but I, they were saying that, you know, when they make up a DVD, uh, you know how DVDs are basically just a standard box that they slip, well, usually they're standard box that they just slip a little thing into? Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, see the guy in the production line that slips that thing into the DVD? Mm-hmm. 
he makes more from each DVD than a writer does. Well, really? Yeah. That's that's not fair. That's not fair, right? So it's like writers actually are making it not that much money. And see, frankly, if you ask me, I think creatively speaking, the writers have the biggest creative influence on a movie. And I, I happen to know that writers are completely shunned in Hollywood. They're always made fun of. And always, do you want to the best example of this? Watch um, Adaptation. Ah, uh, Yes. That shows you actually a pretty good example of really the way writers are treated in Hollywood because they are sort of like, they're the the geeky guys that are involved in films almost. Like, yeah, you're like the least. They're the ones that are like right at the bottom of the A-list parties. It's like, they're not crew, so technically they're invited to A-list parties, but they're kind of shunned when they get there. (laughs) Uh, That's the way it seems to me anyway. But anyway, I don't think they're making enough money. Because um, at the end of the day, there would not be any films without screenwriters. They're the ones that come up with the ideas. They're the ones that really have the biggest artistic impact. On, I mean, everything else that happens after that is reactionary to, well, what, I, to what the screenwriter's I would, role. I would argue that directors uh, have a huge input. Do you in actually the... know what a director does, Scott? Well, no, because the director will direct like the whole sort of uh, emotion of the scene and will tell someone how he wants them to react in a certain okay, scene. Okay, okay, okay. And... See, as far as I'm aware, and I've got to be honest, I've done a little bit of reading into this, and this is all I can figure out. See, in film... All a director seems to do to me is try and get the best performance out of the actors. Yeah, but he also um, is there because I mean, you see, like different different films uh, who have had different uh, directors, kind of halfway through a change, or whatever. The the entire premise and atmosphere of the movie can change because that the director is the one who's there yeah, giving the yeah, emotional direction. And no, I find when that's the case, it's because they tend to use similar crews. Ma. Yeah. Is that? Like the, I see, I see a director. A director would tend to bring a production company with him that he likes to work for. So, okay, for instance, right, he'll okay, have so... the same cinematographer who actually sets what a scene looks like. Scott, he'll have the same lighter and lighting director who sets the emotional tone of a scene from the lighting. He'll have the same location scout. You know what I mean? Yeah, okay, but I mean that's still coming from the director, though, isn't it? I mean, it's the no. director that's uh, then saying, "Okay, well, I want it to be like this." No, because so... the director doesn't do that. It's the producer's job. Yeah, but the director's the one who chose who, how no, he wants it to no, be. No, it's, it's not. The director doesn't see where the camera goes. The director doesn't see how the shot starts. That's the choreographer does all that. And the director of photography. Yeah, but they're still following his direction. No, they're not. That's the whole point of the director. The director that, almost, says, that almost never happens. The director you says, can actually, this you is can what name, I want to You can name on one hand all the directors that actually do that. There's a handful of directors that have that genuine kind of impact on a movie. And you know all their names. <laughs> Spielberg, Ridley Scott. <laughs> yeah, you totally know there's like Spielberg, Cameron, Scott, uh, Lucas, Wachowski Brothers, Burton. Well, okay, in fairness, those are the ones I'm pretty much Coppola, thinking maybe. of when I'm thinking of maybe directors. Coppola. Do you know what I mean? It's like you know them. It's like, see, any anytime you know the name of a director, it's because they're actually the good ones that have that kind of artistic impact. Sophie did Think it. about how many films get made. Sophie uh, Coppola did it in. Uh, uh, What's it, that film with thingy? Well, see, uh, technically I would argue that because see the two films I've seen by Sofia Coppola, Marie Antoinette and Lost in Translation. Yeah, Lost in Translation. They both look totally different. And, yeah. and she worked with different crews in both films because in Lost in Translation, she was working with an Oriental crew that was like based out there. And in Marie Antoinette, she was working with a French crew that were based out there. Yeah, but you must be able to put some of that into the fact they're two completely different films. Oh, possibly, but I mean, not the way you're talking. Because I mean, like, for instance, you can totally tell a George Lucas film. You can always tell a Spielberg film. It doesn't mean it doesn't really matter what the, you know, the emotional tone of the film is. You can always tell it's Spielberg. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I mean, I couldn't have told. I couldn't have told you they were both Sofia Coppola films based on that. And what's that? You know that guy that does the the, the Royal Tenenbaums and stuff, uh, Wes Wes Anderson. Yeah. You can totally tell all his films. Yeah. No matter what they're about. See, I, I would have just put that down <clears throat> to the director, but. 
Oh, no, see, again, and those films, I'm saying it is the director. But, see, it's not, it's not entirely that. It's because they will work with similar crews because they can dictate who they work with as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's like, yeah. I think, I think the point I'm making is I think directors get too much credit and make a lot of money. You know, I mean, whereas at the end of the day, I mean, don't get me wrong, even if directors do all the things you're saying they do, right, which I don't think they do, but if they actually do all the things you're saying they do, they're still doing it as a reactionary thing to what's in the script. Yeah. They don't come up with the tone. They look at the script and say, okay, so that makes me think this. That makes me think that. You know, if the script wasn't there, what would they be directing? Nothing. There's nothing for them to direct. There is no story. There is no script. There is nothing to do. You know, I mean, it's like directors don't actually create things from nothing. They have, I mean, they may have creationism, but it comes from a reactionary thing from the script, surely. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Fair enough. So okay. I would say scriptwriters have the largest creative impact on a film because they're the ones that make it from scratch. Well, in that case, who is responsible for making a new film then? Who is it? The writer is the one who comes up with the idea for a new film and then they give it to the studio and then the studio says, yes, we like it, okay. Yeah. And then they get the should get the credit for the film and then the studio is the one who then chooses the director and mm-hmm. everyone who's going with it and then they are the ones who are following the instructions on the paper, basically. Yeah, pretty much. So, but usually what happens is the, the, the screenwriters will join the Screenwriters Guild and they'll send scripts to studios. And when a studio accepts a script, that's semi the end of the involvement for the writer a lot of the time. Right, okay. The only time the writers tend to continue to be involved is when they're involved in another aspect of the film, i.e. either a producer, an executive producer, a director, an actor. Not unless they're actually involved in some other way will they continue to be involved. It's actually quite rare for the writers to... Because basically, it's like they, they are sort of shunned. It's like, okay, great, you got the scripts, now get out, you know. So see, like, Spielberg's films then. Yeah. Like, I just assumed that all of Spielberg's films were Spielberg's own creation from his mind. <laughs> no. <laughs> so uh, I've been completely misled there then. I don't think there's any ones that were Spielberg's from his mind. Like, E.T. wasn't a Spielberg... No, no, he didn't write E.T. Oh, right. That was some guy came up with that, and then he directed it. In fact, Spielberg's never written a film, as far as I'm aware. Jaws Except is based for all on the those shorts. No, no, he didn't write those. No, no, when he was at uni, you know. He oh, did, the shorts. Yeah, okay, probably did the shorts. But see, like the, the Spielberg's amazing stories and stuff—they weren't written by Spielberg or anything. Uh, okay. Nothing. I don't. I don't, nothing I know of that he's done. Okay, maybe okay, some stuff he did back in like film school, but anything commercially he's done has been written by somebody else because he is just a director. That's all he does: director and executive producer. And again, executive producer—what did they really do except make more money? <laughs> well, yeah. They just, they just decide how money gets spent, as far as I'm aware. I, I think the executive producer is the person you want to go and ask for money. Uh, this is all very interesting. Uh, I think that if uh, if you are out there and you're listening and you are a director, that you should uh, comment and give us some feedback. Yeah, because I, mean, I, I only know one person that I could pretend was a director, <laughs> which is uh, our good friend John, who will probably be directing our film. <laughs> and John would agree with me on everything I've just said, because I've had this discussion with John, who said that yes... In big budget productions, directors tend not to do very much. Interesting. And interesting. The, the reason why you know certain directors' names is because they're the ones that have a genuine artistic impact on the films, and that's why you remember them. Okay. That's what he said, anyway. I think, and I, I agree with him. I think he's right. It's uh, an hour and ten minutes. I know, is it going great? Anyway, so the, the artistic stuff, um, the screenwriters, now, I think that's, that's something that applies to all art. I don't think it's just screeners. I mean, screeners is good because, you know, it's the kind of stuff that we would talk about here. And, of course, Scott and I are taking the route of we're doing everything, so it doesn't really matter for us. But um, a lot of people maybe can't do it our way and they want to actually make a bigger production than we are going for and would need to find funding. 
Mm. And there's always that, there's always been that symbiosis between artists and financiers who have the money. And it's like artists don't have any money and they need capital get to get them started to make their vision. And then financiers only want to put you know money into films that will make money in turn. Mm. No, I mean, because like, ultimately, I mean, art isn't usually made for art's sake. But the art that people want to put money into is the art that people are going to want to actually pay money to see or experience. Mm. So the financiers only really want to make stuff like that. So the big thing that's happening recently is the record industry, who, you know, are quite happy to churn out a lot of pop. The kind of songs which... A lot of what, sorry? Pop music. Oh, okay. The kind of stuff that, you know, you hear it and you like it and you, you, you want to dish out money and buy it. But actually, a month from now, you'll never want to hear it again ever in your life. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. You know, and the record companies love that because you know it's easy to sell, it's immediately likable, and people get bored with it quickly and want new stuff. Um, and actually, record companies at the moment are not putting that much effort into cultivating bands that have long-lasting appeal. Um, because you know, one, they actually like this idea of disposable music that you only want to, you'll pay for it and then not listen to it again. Mm. And it's also that cultivating bands is harder for them because it costs them more money. Because it means they have to stay with an artist and then the bigger an artist gets, the more money they'll demand. Whereas if it's an artist that's only going to have one popular song, they can just dump them immediately and just pay the next artist the same pitiful sum. Yes. And artists make, again, same as scriptwriters, make very little money on each CD that's actually sold. It's just, artists don't make very much money. And Radiohead recently did that whole thing where they released an album and just did it themselves and I think it's actually worked out quite well for them. Yeah, and Nine Inch Nails are doing it now. Um, but anyway, it's, it's 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 a thing that's always a case between artists and financiers. And I think people have to start realizing that, you know, it shouldn't just be that. Well, I put all the money in, so I should get all the money out. You know, it's it's a symbiosis thing. It's like you know, if the artists weren't there, the financiers would have nothing to put their money into, and they'd never make the money out. I mean, if quite frankly, financiers will always make money because they always find something to put money into and invest in other companies or something, but. The thing is with these kind of things that we keep talking about, these empowering tools and things that the internet and open source and stuff is providing people, you need less and less money to do a lot of these things. I mean, you can basically write a professional typeset book, have it totally ready to print, and actually have somebody else print it for you for almost no money. And that's because of all these tools that are now in place. Whereas years ago, you'd actually have to have like financial backing and stuff, and you know, you'd have to have some initial capital investment to get a book published. You just don't need that now. You don't even really need a publisher now, you know. There's like Lulu and stuff will publish it for you and that doesn't cost you any money. It's great. And, you know, music's now getting that way as well. And I think that's kind of what we're trying to do with film. We're trying to show you that as an amateur, you can kind of do this and it, you can do it without a financier. Now, we're not saying you don't have, you don't want to go down that route. If you want to do something that's a much, you know, bigger budget affair than what we're doing, fair enough. But I think the point is that we're trying to like show you that there is this possibility that that's not maybe necessarily the only way. But um, anyway, we just thought that was interesting with the whole screenwriters thing kind of showing up that that is actually a genuine issue, not just something that we are kind of seeing as an issue. Yeah. What was that noise? Oh, it's my uh, laptop fan. All right, cool. Um, so I guess that's it for this week. It's a really long show. It's going to take ages to upload, isn't it, Scott? Yeah, it is. <laughs> You're going to be here till ages. Um, so we'll just end it there. Um, thanks very much for listening um, to Fictionality. Yes. Um, I don't know where you got this show from, but you know, head along to fictionality.co.uk and find out more. But uh, for this week, I'm John Ferguson. And I'm Scott Heron. And we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye.